Well, good morning, everybody. It's actually this afternoon now. Good afternoon, everybody. We're going to continue our journey um, on an adventure, I think, for all of us. Perhaps it's a little overdue. I think I mentioned, if we can get the slides up, that would be good. I think I mentioned that um, for many or many reasons, we find ourselves as Christians falling into one of three categories. There are the accidental Christian. That's someone who kind of stumbles across, minding your own business, you stumble across something to do with Jesus and his truth and his reality. There's the incidental Christian, and that's the person that really has no great focus or vision for their life. They have this approach, and I've met many of uh, Christians that are like this, that think, well, you know, if God wants to bless me, he knows where I live. <laughs> he has my address. You know, like you're the only person on the planet, and God's got nothing more to do than just bless you. And then there's the third category of Christian. And, and for these, um, this group of people, I have a dream that we would all become this kind of Christian, the intentional Christian. Somebody with a clear understanding that God has subjected the advances of his purposes in our lives to the partnership that he has with us. We're not waiting around for something to happen. We're actually moving and walking and stepping towards what has already been provided for us. And what has been provided for us is so important to keep right at the forefront of our minds because without it, we will start to be affected and slimed by other ideologies in the world. Jesus said these words, the thief has come to steal and destroy, John chapter 10. That reality, have you seen that reality? Talk to me, I can go home and be ignored. Have you seen that reality? Yeah, the thief has come to rob, to steal, and destroy. Oh, we see it, Jesus. We're in it, Jesus. We witness it, Jesus. We've been affected by it, Jesus. But he said this, but I have come, that you may have life, and life in all its fullness. When you decide to become intentional, not accidental or incidental, about your journey as a Christian, you will find yourself confronted day after day by that abundant life. It's been stored up for you. It's been prepared for you. It's been paid for by Jesus for you. And you have to go after it. You see, there are battles in our world. And some of them are worth fighting. And some of them are not worth fighting for at all. And the Bible says, fight the good fight. What's the good fight? One you're going to win. Amen? And you can always and will always win if you pursue God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. He will ensure that you experience the life that he has indeed already provided and paid for. Someone say, Amen. Amen. Now you can't be casual about that. You can't be incidental or accidental about that. You must draw yourself to a place of decision, a conscious awareness that that kind of life can only truly be experienced by pursuit. That's why the scriptures tell us that we must seek the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And he tells us that as we make that pursuit our goal, all things will be added to us. I think so often we're chasing the all things that should be added to us and not necessarily pursuing the kingdom of God and its righteousness. 
So we're looking around at the moment and asking, how can we become that kind of Christian? The kind of people, the kind of disciple, the kind of lover, the kind of follower of Jesus Christ that actually experiences the stuff we're singing about. Because I think sometimes in church, we sing about stuff we don't experience. Yeah? Power in the name of Jesus. We've sang that today. I don't know if you've listened to the words. Is somebody going to bed? Just, just, just keep, keep it down. You won't fall asleep on me. If there's power in the name of Jesus, don't you want that power? Talk to me. Come on. Don't you want to experience that power for yourself? If there's, if there's freedom in Jesus Christ, don't you want freedom? How many of you are sick to death of being captive to all kinds of ideologies and habits? And Come on. Is there anybody here who struggles to be free? Talk to me. Come on, church. Absolutely. And it's not okay. I won't let it be okay as long as I'm a gatekeeper in this house for us to sing truths that we don't experience. Jesus didn't die to give us an ideology. He died to give us a new reality. Jesus came to make all things new. And I can't be incidental or accidental about that. I must put my, my shoulder to the plow and work with the Spirit towards that goal. So we're looking at ways at the moment that we can do just that. And last week we, we spoke about meditation. Was anybody here last week? Yeah. Spoke about meditation, how to fill and to flood our minds, to make space in the room of our hearts and spirits for God to commune and to connect with us. Because when we allow him to do that in our lives, when we mull over, when we marinate our, our thinking and our souls and our spirit, if you like, in the reality of Jesus, we find we make much better choices we find that we live in peace. We find that joy is not some kind of, you know, far off distant reality. It's a present and current experience for us. And so we looked at that. And, you know, please go online and look at that and listen to that. There's some things there that are very practical to help us. But this week, I want to take you to something else. I want to take you to this, the discipline of prayer. And I want to say to you that as I was preparing for this, I really struggled with these two words in the same sentence. I struggled with the idea that discipline was connected to prayer because, to be honest with you, I would love it to be different than that. I always thought that, you know, you just so love God, you couldn't wait to be with him. But I want to suggest to you that we have to practice who we are called to be. We have to practice who we're supposed to be as Christians. And you have bad habits, and one of them is tagging prayer on to the end of your day. Or you find yourself praying more when you've got an emergency. Anybody like me? Prayer was never intended to be something that was occasional or accidental or added on to the peripherals of our life. It was meant to be the very center of the thing that we have with God in communion and connection with the one who has all brilliance at his disposal. And of all the disciplines, the disciplines that we are talking about and will talk about over these next number of weeks, the discipline of prayer is the most spiritually forming discipline in the life of a Christian. Why? Because it keeps us in constant communion and connection with God our Father. Think about that. Imagine living in a consistent conversation. Imagine living with access permanently to the brilliance and the reality and the wisdom and the power and the glory of God. If that's available, why would we make it something we do occasional? If God is available and ready and wanting that kind of intimate relationship with us, 
Why do we shoehorn it into five minutes at the beginning of a day or something we say out loud in a church service? You and I were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ to live in this reality. Jesus purchased your life with his blood, dealt with the sin that you had before God, and he made a way where there was never a way. He made a way possible for you not to have occasional conversations, but to live in the consistent union and connection with the God who knows everything about everything. Why would we allow that to be something that's accidental or incidental? We need to be intentional about that. See, here's the truth. Meditation helps us get connected to our inner life. Did you know you have an inner life? Does anybody recognize that there are some voices? No, we're not saying you've got a problem. Have you recognized there's some voices? Have you recognized that when life happens to you, certain things begin to kind of stir up in you? Do you have a, 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 a kind of conscience, maybe? Okay, that inner life is the place where God wants to dwell in peace and in power. And right now, in all of our inner lives, we'd like to think we have one voice. It's usually the voice of my mother, and she sounds like Mrs. Brown. Don't be doing that now, don't. You know. But I have more than one voice. I have a committee. And I think you probably do too. There's sometimes a voice, an inner voice that says, go on. It doesn't matter. Who's going to know? You only get one life. Live it while you can. Pick up the pieces afterwards. Has anybody heard that voice? Come on, talk to me, people. Has you heard that voice? What about this one? You're never going to make it. It's never going to happen. You're just not good enough. Stop fooling yourself. You've got ideas above your station. Sit down, shut up, and do what you're supposed to do. Has anybody had that voice? Oh, it's funny how you know that one, isn't it? You'll admit to that one. What about this one? You know they're going to find you out, don't you? You know that at some point it's all going to go pitong. Yeah? You don't have one voice. You have many voices. Many voices shaped by your life experience, shaped by the people who said things over you, shaped by your family, shaped by your school teachers. You have many voices. And let me tell you this, unless you learn how to silence them, they will direct your life and they will wreck your life. But the still small voice of Almighty God will always bring you to peace and to fullness and to blessing. That's why it says in the scriptures that we need to learn how to be still. It's not talking about physical activity. It's talking about an internal reality. Do you know that you're meant to live the whole of your life from a place of peace? Your internal world is meant to be at rest with God. It is well, after all, with your soul. It is well because he has dealt with the very obstacle that stopped you from experiencing the fullness you have already got. The sense of God within you. Greater is He. Greater is He who is in you. The trouble is His voice is drowned out by all the other voices. So we need to learn to meditate in the reality of the voice and the Word of God. I find also that fasting really helps. Fasting accommodates my desire to experience God. You see, when the Bible talks about fasting. It always talks about fasting in the context of prayer. Now, I want to tell you a little story, and I'm sure you can identify with this, but how many of you have fasted? Give me a little wave if you fasted. 
Isn't it true that really you were more preoccupied with being thinner? Stop lying. A number of years ago when we were building this building, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, I want you to go on a 40-day fast. A 40-day fast. And it's hard to believe, but I was once thin. You doubting Thomases. And I, I, I endeavored to do this. But you know, after about two weeks, people were saying things to me. Gosh, you look very thin. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. I know. And you know, the whole thing got hijacked by being thin. I found that what started off with great spiritual intention to be more sensitive and available and connected to God turned into vanity. I started trying on suits that were two sizes too small, thinking by the end of the 40 days, I'll be in that, Jesus. I'll be in. My outward transformation seemed to become more important than my inward transformation. And don't lie to me. I know you do it all. All of us do this because we don't understand that fasting is about accommodating and making space for us to connect with the God who has the answer to every question we could ever possibly ask. When you fast, you need to pray. It's not just about avoiding food. It's about connecting with him. The one who... Amen? Amen. And what about... ...our mind. Do you ever think your mind is in need of a little upgrade? <laughs> Come on. The Bible teaches us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. And that should be a bit of a warning for us because we sometimes think a little bit too easily or glibly that we know the mind of God. Do you know that God knows everything about everything and you know something about nothing? And you can't even work out what you're going to wear to work tomorrow. Is that not true? to think the way God thinks, to perceive the way God perceives. And consequently, so as a person thinks, they begin to live, they begin to act. So study does that for you. Can I say about study, and we, we need to be careful about this, is that we have made Bible reading almost like reading the manual for your car. So we look at it with an abstract kind of understanding of information, but actually the Bible is not given to you just for information. Every syllable that's written on the pages of that book has life attached to it. Every single thing written about, written for you, is an invitation to you to look deeper into the reality of the nature and the character and the person of God. The Bible changes things. The Bible says of itself, that his word is sharper than a two-edged sword. You see, if I come to the Bible and I think I know 
what I'm going to read, if I'm overly familiar with what I have, I am reading, I'll miss something of the work it needs to do in me. Years ago, I used to be part of a, um, a group of people who ran this movement called the National Leadership Team. And it would fall to us every time we gathered, we gathered about four or five times a year, that one of us would do a devotion each morning in our gatherings. But there was one gentleman who always said, every single time you said, you know, if it was your turn to do it, you'd say, I'm going to be reading from Leviticus chapter 3. You'd say, heard it. The following day, someone's reading from John chapter 4. Heard it. And I let this go for about three or four months until it became my turn to do the devotions again. And so I started to read Ephesians chapter 1. Heard it. I said, you might have heard it, but do you live it? Do you live it? You see, we can be so overly familiar with the Word of God that we impose upon the text what we think, what we feel, what we believe to be true. Now, if you're going to read the Bible, you've got to be willing to be confronted because it is the truth, and your truth is inferior to it. It is life itself, and the life you want is found on its pages as you allow its word to do its work in you. We don't come to the Bible to read it for information. We come to the Bible for personal transformation. We say, God, make me think the way you think. Make me act the way you act. Make me love what you love. Make me hate what you hate. Make me desire what you desire. So I believe that prayer is the greatest and most important and the greatest priority for anybody who wants to experience personal spiritual transformation. To pray is life-creating. What do I mean by that? That as I come to the Lord in prayer, God begins to create a life in me that's not just natural, but is supernatural. His power, His truth, His heart, His ways, His word, His love, His reality begins to become formed in me. See, for a long time, I thought prayer was about changing other people or changing my circumstances. But of recent weeks, months, maybe years now, I've started to understand that the real work of prayer is not God doing something for someone. The real work of prayer is God making me like Jesus as I wait in his presence and seek his heart and long for his will to come to pass. There's a work in you before there can ever be a work through you. And when we pray, we don't come to a God presuming we know what he wants to do. We come as children who are curious. Father, what is the will that you have for me in this situation? How should I pray? How should I pray for this situation? I can't tell you enough how presumptuous we are when we come into the presence of God. You think you know what God wants to do in every situation? Come on, wake up. Even Jesus had to seek the will of the Father. And he said of himself, I only do what I see the Father doing. Sometimes we have wasted so much of our life in prayer. So much time in prayer. We've been praying for things that aren't necessarily the will of God. We've been pursuing things in relationship with God for the sake of wanting to change certain people or certain outcomes around us. But prayer fundamentally is God creating the reality of Jesus 
at the center of your life. Prayer is life creating. It's also life changing. You know, I think one of the things that happens to us all is this. We stop praying when we stop wanting to change. When we have no desire to change, when we have no expectation we can change, when we've resigned ourselves to the fact that it won't change, here's what people do. They stop praying. And you see, often praying and not believing that you're going to change will be really challenging because God changes you in the process of prayer. He changes the way you think about people. Changes the things you feel about people. It changes the things you see in this world, the way you see them and how you see them. Let me explain that to you. You see, sometimes I've been around this a while now. We come to prayer, and this is how we pray. Oh, God, da-da-da-da, God, da-da-da, will you do this, Jesus? Will you do that, Jesus? Da-da-da-da, will you sort her out? Will you sort him out? Would you get rid of this? Hang on a second. You think the problem is everybody else? Hello? problem isn't everybody else. You're the problem. I have discovered something. It's a secret. I'll tell you it for free. God won't do through you what he hasn't done in you. In Matthew chapter 5, where the disciples come to Jesus, and we'll come to this a bit later on, they say, teach us how to pray. This is how Jesus models that. He says, go into your room, shut the door, and what your father sees in secret, he will then reward in public. We want this to change. We want him to change. We want her to change. But God's greatest goal always, his priority above that, is that you would change. And when you change and are transformed by intimacy, you will carry an authority that when you speak, demons tremble at the sound of your voice. There is no authority without intimacy. It's just presumption. You've been in the meetings, haven't you? We've bound everything, we've loosed everything, and nothing's changed. Hello. Yep. We've cursed it, we've blessed it, we've dug it, we've dunged it. The problem isn't that God can't do it. The problem is I am not in a place where he can do it through me. So he has to bind it, lose it, dung it, ditch it in here before he will ever release it out there. Oh, should we go home now then? I'm trying to help you. This is the truth. This is how it works. Real prayer is life creating. It creates the life of Jesus in you. And it becomes the means and the mechanism by which God changes things around you. To pray is to change. If we come at this with any other ideology, we will be presumptuous and we will not see what we protest is available to us in God. Look at this scripture for me, please. This is where I found myself drawn to this week. It says, you ask and you do not receive. 
Can I ask you a quick question? Have you ever prayed for something and it didn't happen? Please talk to me. I feel very lonely up here. Have you ever prayed for an outcome and the outcome wasn't what you wanted? Yeah? Why do you think that was? Why do you think that was? Doesn't it say, ask and you shall receive? Doesn't it say, seek and you will find? Doesn't it say, knock and the door will be opened? Doesn't it tell us that if we ask for bread, our Heavenly Father is so good, He wouldn't give us a scorpion or a stone, He would give us the Holy Spirit? So if God keeps asking us to ask, and we are asking, and we're not experiencing what we're asking for, there's a problem. Does anybody here have a television? Got a telly? You're holy, you are, aren't you? You've got a television? When you go to switch it on with the remote and it doesn't come on, do you just sit back in the chair and think, oh, well. Do you? Talk to me, come on. No, you don't. If there was anything going to move you, it's the telly not working. Particularly when there's a football match on. What do you do when the telly doesn't work? You check the batteries in the remote control. Yeah. If that doesn't work, what else do you do? You rise, shine, for the light is about to come. And you move towards it. And you do what every great intellectual person does. You wiggle the wires. You wiggle the wires in the back. Am I wrong? And if that doesn't work, and you can't get it working, you wouldn't just leave it there. I can guarantee you, you'll be sitting in your room and you'll go back to that same TV set about 20 times before you submit to this reality. You might not be able to get it working, but you know a man who can. And you will call that person, and it'll be a matter of priority for heaven forbid we should not have a television going on in the background of our life. And before 24 hours passed, all God's people said amen. There he is with his toolbox to fix it. Because you know, and I know, that the signal is working. You know, and I know, that it's consistent. You know, and I know, that it's available 24 hours a day in all kinds of shapes and sizes. The problem isn't the satellite. The problem is the mechanism. And the same is true of your prayer life. God is good all the time. God is permanently available. God is powerful. God is merciful. God is capable. But you're remote. And your wiggly wires. Your capacity to receive and to connect and to experience that goodness needs work. It needs help. That's why God gave you a pastor. You can't get connected to Jesus. You keep trying to get connected to Jesus. You either speak to your life group leader, you speak to your pastor, you speak to your friend who's nearly a member of the Godhead. It's closed. And you say, what do I do? How do I change this? Because I want to hear his voice. I want to experience the answers to prayer. Look what this says is the reason 
for this not working. It says, you do not receive, talk to me, what does it say? Because you asked wrongly. What? I asked wrongly? What do you mean, God, I asked wrongly? When Jane and I were getting married many thousands of years ago, the pastor who was marrying us was our pastor, David Woodfield. And as we were rehearsing, the kind of rehearsal for the wedding day, um, he said to Jane, there are three things that you have to remember. And she went, yes, pastor. She's always been a lovely, godly woman. He says, when you come in, Jane, you walk down the aisle. Aisle. You come straight up to the altar, the front of the church. Altar. And then you turn to him. Jane, what have you got to remember? Aisle. Altar. Him. Aisle. Altar. Him. Aisle. Altar. Him. Are you getting it? Aisle. Altar. Him. Of all the things in marriage counseling we had, it's the one thing that she took seriously. And for the last 30 years, the goal of every day is, I'll alter. Now you're laughing, but that's what it means to ask wrongly. You see, I think we love the notion that we carry this purity in our hearts. But listen to what the Bible says about your heart, which is the wellspring of life, by the way. It says, your heart is deceitful above all things. And it invites us to guard it. And what that means is to protect what God is doing in it. Guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. You're telling me that every prayer you pray comes from that place of purity, holiness, where you know God and you know what he wants, I can promise you it doesn't. I can promise you that most of your prayers have you at the center of them. I can promise you that most of your prayers are really I'll alter him prayers. God, can't you just stop him from behaving like that? God, can't you, the mighty smiter, just smite him, Jesus. God, can't you just make sure that they're exposed for the liars that they are? God, can't you just bring judgment upon them and fire? I worship you, almighty God. You know, in this room... There's a whole bunch of things going on inside of you. And it's not all pure. And it's not all good. And it doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't smell like Jesus. And it won't create what Jesus can create. Because you, like me and like everybody else on this planet, have not understood that when we are called to prayer, we are called to submit to the superior reality of the God who invites us into communication. What we're doing is this, thy kingdom come, which means simply to you and to me, my kingdom has to go. We're called 
to submit and to bend and to yield and to partner with his mind and his will and his heart. And let me tell you a little bit about God, because you may not have heard this. He's never manipulated anybody into doing anything they didn't want to do. And when you manipulate through prayer, you ready for this? You are operating in the spirit of witchcraft, which is the spirit of manipulation and control. You have no legitimate control over anybody's life. Well, if you're a parent, you kind of sort of have to a certain age. But when people become able to make their own choices, the only place you have legitimate control, it's called self-control. How many hours have you wasted trying to change people? These teeth cost me a fortune. I'm going to get my value out of them today. <laughs> These are not turkey teeth. They're talkie teeth. <laughs> Don't you think that God hears the sound you make if it's not the words you speak? Doesn't he, don't you think he knows your motivations? Hello? So, we can pray and keep praying, but we're praying wrongly. And here's the evidence of that. We want to spend it. In other words, we want to utilize it for our own passions. A number of years ago, I was chatting to a minister friend of mine, and he was telling me this. He said, you know, Simon, I just was so righteously angry. And I went, really? He said, oh, yes, you know where Jesus turns over the tables in the temple? He said, I felt just like him. I said, really? No, I knew this person, and I knew that couldn't possibly be true. So I said, well, what does it feel like? Well, the sense of injustice that this person demonstrated towards me, required of me to rise up in righteous anger. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, but that wasn't righteous. That was just anger. You know, to have a righteous anger, you need to have the heart of the righteous one at the forefront of those interactions. Stop pretending that you're something you're not. Just admit, I'm angry. This is going well, isn't it? Because we want laughter and joy, but we need change. We need to change, and we need to see change, and we need to be changed. And sometimes that's not a giggle. That's a challenge. Anyway, talk amongst yourselves. I'm going home. I think it must be 20, maybe 30 years ago, I found myself caught up in the whirlwind of prayer concerning a man who was related to me. It's my wife's uncle. His name was David. And David was diagnosed with having motor neuron disease. Back then, we had no idea what that meant. He was an elder in this church, a founder member of this church, a very godly man. We were shocked to the core of our being. 
How could it be that God could let something like that happen to someone? Like somehow only God allows sickness to come to people who aren't nice. Bad thinking. And I was on the youth team here at the time. And every Monday night we would go to David's house. He lived just over there at Lodge Hill. And we would pray. And we did what all good Pentecostals do. We bound it. Have you ever done those prayers? Bind it with the name of Jesus. You've got to have that tone in your voice. So it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. We bound it. We loosed it. The healing power of God. We broke generational curses. We cried merciful over his body. As it lay progressively becoming paralyzed by this absolutely heinous disease. We believed categorically that he would be healed. That God in his power would come and do what the scripture says he can do. And guess what happened? He died. And even though he died, our hope was not diminished. We thought maybe there's a greater plan than this. So we went along to the morgue and we asked to see him. We laid hands on him. It was an interesting conversation with the person who was attending. But we commanded his body to come back to life. And it didn't. And then, being the creative person I am, I thought, God, maybe it's going to be like in the Bible. At his funeral, he's going to sit up in the coffin. Can you imagine that? We'd have all died of a heart attack. But in my mind, in my mind, I thought, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be stunning that you did that? We didn't have this church then. He got his last and final farewell at the Methodist church just the other end of this road. And I remember sitting there thinking, is it now? Is it now? Now, Jesus, and when at the end, you know, there's this little phrase that you say when you're a minister, we now commit his body to the ashes, dust to dust. I thought, now, 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 Jesus. And the curtain closed, and nothing happened. I went to a senior leader in my life, and I asked them the question. I said, how come God didn't heal this man? And this is what this senior leader said to me. Ultimately, he is healed. You know, church, we have come up with just about every nuanced response to prayers that are not answered. We say things like this, well, God in his sovereignty will work that out. What we simply should say is, somehow our prayer has not worked. Teach me how to pray. Jesus, show me how to pray. The amount of times I've heard people make excuses, we have a whole list of them now, for unanswered prayer. And I want to say this to you, for years I just accepted it. I thought, well, maybe God has ways and means that I don't understand. But I want to remind you of this. This is what God says. Lay your hands on the sick and they shall be healed. He doesn't say lay your hands on the sick and then come up with an excuse because they weren't healed. He doesn't say lay your hands on the sick and then try and apologize to the family because they're not healed. He doesn't say, excuse the fact 
that the healing didn't happen. He says, lay your hands on the sick and they shall be healed. It's time to come out from under the lies we're telling ourselves. It's time to step away from some of the idiosyncratic thinking responses and attitudes we have to unanswered prayer. Here is the reason why our prayers are not being answered. It is not God withholding anything. We just haven't taken hold of something. We didn't understand that we needed to think the way he thinks, feel the things he feels, respond the way he responds. And I'm so sorry if you think I'm being exertingly, overwhelmingly provocative about this, but we can't sing, show your power, God, and then excuse the fact that there is no power because he is always powerful. Wake up, church. He is always willing to heal. Somebody I know keeps telling me that God has made them sick. It's a lie. God does not make people sick. They believe it's for his glory. It's a lie. They've bought into an ideology that excuses something and allows and permits sickness to continue in their life. I am violently opposed to a lie. And you should be celebrating with me that I am. Because when we lay hands on the sick, we want to see what Jesus saw when he laid hands on the sick. Amen? And if Jesus healed the sick and God gives sickness, then that trinity is divided and cannot be in unity. So sickness does not come from God. Do you hear me, church? Don't virtualize it or moralize it or even spiritualize it. Sickness is as a result of the fall and the separation that existed between God and man. And we are now infected with things that we need to be disinfected from. And when Jesus came, he demonstrated in the here and now that when he laid hands on the sick, they were healed. He didn't say to the man with the blind eyes, maybe there's a generational curse. Let me shabba write that. Shabba, shabba, shabba. Shibbity, shabba, shabba, shabba. He didn't say that. Did he? He didn't say the lepers who were outside of the community, well, you know how it is. Some people get healed. Some people don't. What kind of a God do we worship where we think he cherry picks healing? Hello? What happens is, when you've tried praying for the sick, you do what most people do. You do what I did after David died. You stop praying. You stop praying because you don't have the capacity to keep on apologizing to people for things that the Bible says are true but have not become true for us just yet. We have to examine our motives. We have to ask the question, God, am I praying in the right way for this person? We have to learn how to pray. We must not presume we know how to pray. Because we were prayerless people for a long time. Let's not pretend that we have all of the answers to the questions we don't even know to ask. If there is power in the name of Jesus, I want to see that power. 
It's not that God has to do it for me. I believe it's the legacy and the reality of his kingdom come. If there's healing in the name of Jesus, I want to see that healing. I don't want to excuse it. I don't want to circumvent it. I want to go barefaced before God in humility and say, what did I do or what could I have done or how could it have been different? I want to be a learner. I want to say, God, teach me your ways. I want to say, Jesus, show me what I couldn't see. I want to say, God, change my heart so that I want what you want the way you want it. Look at the scripture. It's bad. It's a bad challenge to us all. It's bad because it's so good and it's so true. You ask and you do not receive. If I was to do a straw poll in this room about where you are on the level of faith for the answers to prayer, if you are a six, that's a good week. Some of us have stopped praying because we recognize that we've stopped receiving answers to prayer. Am I wrong? No. And we can't pretend there isn't a problem. I think there's a saying in the world that madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. We have to be honest and say, God, I am not capable of understanding why this hasn't worked. Show me, just as the disciples did. Teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. We have to question our motives. You know, my whole family was being saved through David. And remember what I said earlier, that prayer is about what God does in you before it is about what God can do through you. So I'm not sure that I learned those lessons particularly well. Let me take you to this. Psalm 37. True biblical prayer happens when we begin to think God's thoughts and desire the things He desires, to love the things He loves, and to will the things that He wants. I'm going to say that again over this gathering. True biblical prayer happens when we begin to think God's thoughts, to desire the things He desires, to love the things He loves, to will the things He wants. Let me explain to you how this works in your life as an individual. I see a need around me. Maybe have I need, a need that's presenting itself to me. And I decide to pray. Like most of you, it probably is a tentative agreement that God, could you answer this quickly? What happens in the process of prayer is this. That God needs to bring alignment before the assignment can be delivered. My mind needs to be changed. It needs to be challenged to think about things. Do you know why? Because I pray from a perspective of a problem. I don't pray from God's perspective of a promise. When I come to a situation, most Christians do this. We see the problem far larger than we see the promise. And I've said this to you a number of times. People think I'm trying to be smart. Christians don't have problems. Of course I know you have difficulties. You have promises. And every promise is already yes and amen. 
So when you look at the circumstance you're praying for, how many of us pray from the perspective of this is a problem? Oh God, if you could only, oh Jesus, if you would only, oh God, does that sound hope-filled? Does that sound clear in your mind? You can't have a problem because you have a promise. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Does that sound like a problem? Oh, your hard work today, church. Is it the heat? When I pray, I have to pray from God's perspective. He's not worried about Rishi. He couldn't care less who's on the throne of the United Kingdom in the sense that he is sovereign over all, above all, and through all. Yeah? There may be an economic downturn, but there's no recession in heaven because he is the God of the exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Okay? So when you come to your circumstance and you are problem-orientated, you are not viewing it from the same perspective that God has. You see, God is not in denial. God is a realist, but he's a realist with a happy disposition. Not sitting, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? How's it going to look? Oh, Mimi, she's such a problem to me. I don't know what to do. I've tried everything. Simon, why can't he be free? Why wasn't he free? They're not talking amongst themselves. They're saying, life, 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 life. Release, 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 release. And every time I click into that truth, I come into partnership with that truth, where two or more agree on something, hello, it shall be. So my mind in my prayer life is hugely important. Hugely important. My heart is hugely important. Have you ever prayed for people that you didn't like? Stop looking at me. You ever prayed for people you didn't like? Please don't tell me you were saying, Lord Jesus, would you bless them with all the abundances? Do you know one of the tests of spiritual maturity in the scriptures is not how eloquent you pray, it's how you love your enemies. That's the test of spiritual maturity. How many of us love our enemies? Hello? You might tolerate them, you might endure them, you might pray for God to smite them, but you don't love them. You see, what that journey is, I have to go from judgment to mercy. And as I go from judgment to mercy, I come into partnership with the God of eternity. For his mercy triumphs over all judgment. And where two more... But two more agree on something. It shall be. So my mind and my heart. What about my will? Have you ever tried to will good things for people you don't like? Ever done that? Now I know you've all tried to will bad things for people you don't like. But have you ever tried to will good things for people you don't like? I tell you what, you're going to need God to do that. That's not natural. That's supernatural. Let me show you this. Jesus, hanging on the cross, perfect, pure, 
does not pray a prayer for himself. He says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see that? That's carrying the heart of God. Father, forgive them. Do you, have you ever prayed that prayer? Your prayer is probably a bit like mine. Father, destroy them. For they know exactly what they do. <laughs> now, I know you wouldn't say it in church because you're too sharp for that. But you know, it's what you believe in your heart, not what you say with your mouth. Your mouth is secondary. You know, you can pray all kinds of nice things for people with your mouth. We, we all do this. It's called being two-faced. Oh, how are you? It's nice to see you. <laughs> I said to somebody once who was a minister, I said, there's two things I like about you. Your face. Wake up. You know, you can say all kinds of things. You think that they, God's impressed? Oh, God of the reeling spheres, come in all your goodness and fill my brother here because you can't be bothered to learn their name. With all kinds of mercies underneath you thinking, I don't like him. Which is God listening to? This or this? Which is he listening to? You ask and you do not receive. Pay attention to that. It's important. And the reason you don't receive is because you ask wrongly. Your motives, your perspectives, your heart is not like God's. Your thinking is muddled and befuddled. And you don't really see this the way God would have you see it. Or even how God sees it himself. You might pray from a problem of lack whenever you are invited to the God of abundance. You may be troubled and anxious and full of worry. And God says, cast all your cares on me for I care for you. You may have anxiety in your prayer. Oh God, please do something for me. I need you to rescue me from this. And the Bible says that God will keep those in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on him. You may be completely overwhelmed by all kinds of insecurities and anxieties. And God says, my perfect love will cast away from you all fear. There is a work in you that is required to come into partnership with the God who delights to give good gifts to his children. And let's not keep ignoring it. Let's be humble enough, curious enough, and honest enough to say these words. Jesus, teach me how to pray. It says of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther who posted the articles, changed the theological outcomes of what salvation looked like for the church in the West. It says that he prayed for three hours every day. Three hours. John Wesley, the great evangelist that walked up and down our country bringing healing and restoration and liberty and freedom and salvation to countless hundreds of thousands of people said this, nothing happens without prayer. He prayed two hours a day. 
Corrie Ten Boom, the woman who survived the Nazi Holocaust as a child, abused and abandoned, subjected to all kinds of horrific things, writes in her book that she prayed three hours a day. And you will not be surprised at this, that Jesus, it says in the Gospel of Mark, as Mark recalls, observing the patterns of Jesus' life, that he woke just at the break of day to go and to pray. How will I ever learn to pray if my availability to God is five minutes? How will I ever become like Jesus if all I allow him to do is just a momentary reality as opposed to a movement of a kingdom inside of me? How will I ever see my life fully come into all that it's supposed to come and this abundance that Jesus has provided become more than a song I sing or a theology I believe but becomes a reality in my heart? Let me tell you, seek his face while he may be found. Your greatest priority, my greatest priority, has got to become prayer. Without it, I will never change. Without it, this world will never have the opportunity to be transformed. Prayer is the poor relative in most churches. We put on a barbecue, the place is full. We put on a prayer meeting, there's a handful of people. Why? Because we have prayed and not seen things change. We have not identified that we need help. We need the school of the Spirit and the Word of God to teach us how to pray the way Jesus prayed. But you know, I want to say this to you, church, and I say it because I care. It's not okay for us to come up with clever answers to huge questions like this. People's lives, families, homes, are dependent on the church having clarity and indeed certainty in some matters. And I think as long as we keep pretending there is an elephant in the room, we'll just keep carrying on doing what we do and never know the power and the authority that's available to us in Christ Jesus. And by the way, as I close this, you have an authority given to you by God himself that whatever you loose in the heavens will be loosed here on earth. Imagine, imagine knowing what to loose. Imagine that. You have authority to cast out demons. And don't think that they don't exist in Birmingham. They're everywhere. You have an authority given to you by God himself to release people from those captive realities. You have a, an authority to lay hands on the sick and to see them be healed. Do you know the most remarkable thing is that God is waiting for people to partner with him in these realities. I don't want to have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. 
If I have an authority, I want to be educated by God's word and his spirit how to use that. And you know what? I think the world is waiting. So I have a goal. I'm not a great prayer. Are you a great prayer? Tell the truth. Stop lying in church. I mean, do you pray for hours? I had a season in my life. I prayed for three hours a day. God did great things in that time. Not because I prayed, but because I was overtly sensitive to his leading and his guidance. Yeah? He was always going to do great things. He's always doing great things. On an average day, I'm landing the plane and I'm going to land it in your heart. Is that okay? Is it 10 minutes you pray for? Five? Any advance on five? Is it lower? Is it three? Do you pray at the beginning of the day? To awaken your heart to all that God wants or at the end of the day? As you take your final gasp of breath before you go to Zedland? Bless me, Jesus, in my sleep. I'm not belittling your prayer. I'm saying to you that if you want Jesus to increase, then you might need to make more space and room for that to happen. It's not going to be instant. And God will teach you his ways and he will show you things and he'll reveal his heart and you will never be the same again. And the devil loves you to be busy. He loves you to be preoccupied. He loves you to be running from one thing to the next. Why? Because when if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and turn from all their distractions and seek my face, here's what I promise I will do. This is God speaking. I will pour out my spirit on their barren land. Prayer, the discipline of, becomes a delight when you start to encounter God in that way. Now, I'm going to pray for myself because I don't want to go home and be discouraged by you. Is that okay? Because judging by the look on your faces, none of this made any sense whatsoever. And I've done my best to communicate what I believe is an important message to this church because I believe God wants to increase our capacity to see His glory. Amen? So, Father, would you forgive them? For they knew exactly what they were doing. Nah. Has anybody ever run a marathon? You can clearly see I never have. You ever run a marathon? Anybody run a marathon, the 5K, the 10K? Yeah? Well, it won't account to you because you look fit already. But if someone like me was running a marathon, would you expect me to run 5K without rehearsals? Without training? It's not called rehearsals, is it? What's it called? Training. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> I can tell the world I came from. Would you expect me to do that? No, you wouldn't. And here's what somebody who's running a marathon who doesn't ordinarily run a marathon does. They get up from the sofa and their first protocol to get themselves in the place and space where they are moving is to walk around the block. And they walk around once, they walk around twice, eventually that becomes like a little bit of a jog. That jog turns into something a little bit more. Nobody gets up from the couch having never exercised and does 5K. That's nonsense. Nobody does three hours in the presence of Jesus without getting up from the sofa. 
and saying, Corrie's on for half an hour. I'm not that interested in the cobbles. I'll go and meet the Christ. And you go upstairs, but, you know, obviously you've got half an hour, so you've got to have a cup of tea. That's another five minutes out of the half an hour. What about your Bible? Well, you haven't found that in three days, so you need to go looking for that. Okay. Okay. You know there's one here, the song here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I found this one, but I really prefer the New King James. So you go looking for that. And what is a half an hour really is probably about 15 minutes. But you know what? If you do that every day, by the end of this week, God will have done something amazing in you, absolutely incredible in you. He's waiting for his people to give up their hearts and their lives and their room for him to come and fill it with his wisdom, his power, and his glory. And there's no condemnation here. We are all in the same place. And this is the prayer we're going to pray as we leave, as you stand together. That was a cue. Jesus, why don't you say this with me? Jesus, teach me how to pray. I thank you, God, there are no experts in this room. In fact, you say to us that unless we become like little children, we will not inherit or experience or fully embrace the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not coming in any sophistication. I'm certainly, please, not coming in any arrogance. I'm not coming, Lord, with anything but a real curiosity and a humility that says, there's so much more to being in relationship with you than I currently have. And if I truly want to be transformed into your likeness, the one place above all places where that becomes available and possible and probable is in and through prayer. Jesus, teach me how to pray. Lord, I've read all the books. I've heard all the seminars. I felt all the guilt that I want to feel for one lifetime. I know this is something I could be better at or make more effort in. I put that right down at the foot of the cross, Jesus. And I plead your blood to cover that with grace and cover that with mercy. Not to excuse my lack of appetite, but Lord God, to not allow the devil, before I even get up off the sofa, to do anything about this, to bring condemnation to my heart. I bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Amen? I cast your lies away from me. There is no condemnation for any of us here. This is not the reality of what's happening here. There is not a condemnation in the room. There's just an invitation from the Father. And I pray, Lord God, we will hear your heart. And you will steal every moment with us that you can. And we will steal every moment with you that we can. Because in your presence... There is fullness of joy. And that fullness of joy, I can't just keep singing about Jesus. I can't just keep talking about. I want to see it, God. I want to experience it, God.
I want to know you and your power and your beauty and your glory. I want to know you, Jesus. As you know me, I want to know you. The deep in me really longs for the deep of you, Jesus. I pray this over this house, God. This has been a hard message. Well, it looked hard on some people's faces. This is my second time to do it. But Lord, I pray this. Let this be the reality of the outcome of this moment. As the deer pants for streams of water, may my soul, may our souls, thirst, long, and crave after you. As the deer cannot live or sustain life without the nourishment of water and will go to whatever length is necessary to find it and to experience it, so let my soul, God, go to anywhere, everywhere, and do anything that is necessary for me to taste and to see that the Lord is good. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. Jesus, you are not withholding from us. Lord, please don't let me withhold anything from you. Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray, Jesus. Jesus, teach us to pray. I say this over this house, over every individual, those online, those who couldn't be with us today. Jesus, you, you, Jesus, the great intercessor, the great high priest, teach us how to pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon.